This week I'm delighted to host Jenna Pussel for a bonus episode on genetic counseling. I met Jenna when she was an intern of Tori and she inspired us with a presentation on ableism in the context of genetic research. So I feel lucky to have her today for a few minutes on the podcast. Jenna, thank you. I'd be happy to start by asking you what led you to genetic counseling. Hi, Luca. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to chat with you. Um, let's see, what led me to genetic counseling? Well, I was a cell and molecular biology major for my undergrad at Tulane. Um, I always loved knowing the why behind why our bodies work the way we do, why we look the way we do, act the way we do. Um, my favorite subject was definitely genetics my sophomore year of college. So... And I knew I didn't and I knew I didn't really want to become a doctor. So that really led me down the path of genetic research. And um, in college, during the summers, I was interned in different research settings. And throughout college, I also worked in different customer service positions. That was kind of my outlet from studying, just talking to people Um and learning how to interact with different people and serve different needs. And after college, I worked in another lab. And after a year working in another genetics lab, I ultimately realized I really wanted to find a career that combined my love for talking to people and interacting with patients. Um, with my love for genetic research. And I found that genetic counseling was really a great opportunity to blend these two interests of mine. Awesome, thank you. So maybe we should start from definition. So what is ableism and uh, what are its connections with genetic counseling? Ableism is, ableism is a form of discrimination, specifically against folks who are disabled and it favors able-bodied people. I, I love this definition by T.L. Lewis, who defines ableism as a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, excellence, and productivity. So essentially, able, in other words, ableism is based on a constructed value system that considers certain traits and body and mind abilities and characteristics as essential to living a fulfilling life. And it assumes that the quality of life of people with disabilities is low, is lower. Um, and how does this relate to genetic counseling? Well, they, the two are tied together really because they both have roots in the eugenics movement. These constructed ideas on disability are deeply rooted in the eugenics movement. And to not get into too much detail about the movement, but for those who aren't familiar, um, the eugenics movement really began at the end of the 1800s. It was led largely by a man named Sir Francis Galton. And it was really based on a theory that the human race could be quote-unquote, improved by selecting for desirable traits. And um, this was done, could be done through methods of genetics and 
heredity, such as selective breeding and forced sterilizations and unfortunately genocides like the Holocaust. And when I talk about the eugenics movement, I don't want to make it seem like it's some historical event that is long past because really the eugenics movement created this mindset of viewing others as unfit that has really perpetuated into not only our beliefs and our um, mindset in society, but also into our policies, um, into our medical model. And just to throw a scary number out there from 1909 to 2010, so really recently, the, there were forced sterilizations of more than 60,000 women, men, and children with disabilities. Um, and it's also, it's also important to note that the communities that were, were and are especially harmed by the eugenics movement are ma- marginalized communities, particularly people of color, people with disabilities, LGBTQ plus communities, and, um, also religious minorities. <laughs> Sure, but something we must be aware of. So, could you give us, please, some examples of ableism in the context of teaching and healthcare? So, um, one example, one broader example in the medical community is just, you know, this this idea that we call the medical model of disability, and it encompasses this greater idea of wanting to cure and treat anything that we view as unhealthy. Um, So an example of a specific example of the medical model of disability that comes up a lot is um, is wanting to cure or treat deafness because in the medical in the medical community a lot of times People might view deafness as something that decreases quality of life. However, if you speak to a lot of members of the, or individuals in the deaf community, they might say that they don't feel that deafness or loss of hearing decreases their quality of life. Um, So that is a, a prime example of how ableism exists a lot in our medical healthcare system. Yeah. Indeed, I must confess that I recycled this example of yours for a lecture I gave at my high school some time ago. So thank you, Jenna. <laughs> of course. May you give us some more examples of ableism in society? Yes, absolutely. Um, one common example that comes up a lot is just in whether it's in the classroom or in presentations at a conference or in a work setting or in meetings, assuming people can hear and assuming people can see. So creating slides that might have very small text or a lot of text um, and also having or not having um, a sign language interpreter available, um, ways to to compensate for this would be to have a variety of um, access options when doing presentations, including having a um, ASL interpreter available, including images and videos and closed captions on slides. Um, and another 
Other examples of ableism can also be as small as the language we use day to day and things we might not think about, such as saying things like um, phrases like it's the blind leading the blind or I am so OCD with how I clean my room and organize my desk. Uh, well, these are phrases that I admittedly even have used before. It's stuff that may uh, invalidate people who have a true diagnosis of OCD or are truly blind. I may minimize their experience. Sure, thanks for sharing. So what about some examples instead of how to choose appropriate language that does not fall into ableism? Yeah, some examples of languages or a language to avoid. Um, calling people wheelchair bound. It's better to say things like this individual uses a wheelchair. Um, calling people intellectually challenged or mentally impaired. Uh, better language to use would just to say an intellectually disabled person. Calling people healthy or normal is good language to try and avoid um, because what really is healthy and what really is normal. Uh, it's better just to say a person without a disability. Yeah, honestly, I don't know what's healthy and what's normal. So right? you also asked a very provocative question in the lab, but is if prenatal genetic testing for autism should be allowed and you describe to potential family settings, right? May you describe for us this setting and explain what's the reasoning behind your question? Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking this. This is a topic that comes up a lot in my training and is something I still struggle with because while I really um, am passionate about combating ableism and supporting the disability community and advocating for the disability community. I am similarly very passionate about reproductive justice and specifically when talking about autism where a lot of these ethical conversations and dilemmas might arise is in the prenatal setting. So when we're thinking about offering prenatal genetic testing for um, individuals who are pregnant, how do we do so in a way that doesn't um, per necessarily perpetuate ableist ideologies? If a pregnant individual discovered that a future child would w did have a genetic mutation that was associated with autism, um, would it be ethical to discontinue that pregnancy? Would that be perpetuating the medical model of disability, ableism, and eugenic ideologies? And many would argue that the answer is yes, absolutely. Others would argue that, um, you know, maybe, maybe the mother does not have the resources or is not equipped to be a good mother for this child and that has led to their decision. Um, this, the pregnant individual, many would argue the pregnant individual should have that choice. So it is really a, a balance in my head between reproductive justice and making sure every pregnant person 
has the autonomy to choose what they want to do to their body and and for their life and for their pregnancy um but you know also balancing that with with advocating for the disability community and not perpetuating ableism if that made any sense if that makes sense yeah absolutely thank you um so a topic that uh, we've discussed a little bit on this podcast and uh, gets very close to what we were just saying is that of gene editing uh, in embryos for devastating rare diseases so soon we'll have a technical possibility to do so quite precisely we've mentioned on this podcast crispr based technologies uh, and base editors uh, but that leads to a strong ethical dilemmas even if we'll have a technical possibility very soon so you know it's kind of hard as we were just saying to define what's healthy and what's not so can we really decide who should have the last word on saying well this is healthy so we shouldn't perform any genetic editing this is absolutely um, devastating so we should perform gene editing the the boundary is very faint so shall we give absolute freedom to individuals but yeah that could lead easily to eugenics and discriminations based on who can really perform genetic modifications who are typically rich people probably as Walter Isaacson greatly describes in his book on Jennifer Nauna or should we as a society put boundaries to prevent eugenics another risk is that of genetic homologation and um, you know also the communities that you just mentioned such as the deaf community um, really have uh, something to say that uh, we wouldn't see at the first inspection so yeah I think there's a lot of things to discern here what's up to the community what's up to the science what's up to the individual as for choosing what's right now that we have these technical possibilities can you share us can you share with us a few insights on this please yeah Luca you brought up so many good points that you know I I don't know if I have a clear-cut answer or conclusion to this I've thought a lot about it and I don't know if one even exists because ideally you mentioned freedom ideally we could just allow every individual person to decide right and have the freedom to decide what kind of gene editing they want to do um, and we would hope if we put this freedom in the hands of every individual person that they wouldn't choose to promote eugenics or perpetuate eugenics um, but we know that that they're really that eugenics is just integrated into our society it's inherent and um, that likely wouldn't be the case so I personally do think that boundaries are very important once gene editing does become more available I think there will have to be boundaries what those boundaries are um, I can't say for certain I know things that will have very clear-cut medical concerns and um, things that affect lifespan that we know affects lifespan um, I think that's on one end of a large phenotypic spectrum and, and for that those kinds of conditions I definitely would support gene editing first on the other hand things that would affect appearance um, 
and not anything medical, I would definitely not support gene editing. But for conditions in between that could affect, that may not affect lifespan, but may affect like cognitive function. Um, and I think the most important thing would be hearing from the individuals in those communities with those conditions before having any set boundaries on those. Um, what's the role of genetic counselors and of scientists in general as uh, these possibilities of gene editing will become real? How can we really make the most of uh, um, continuous communication uh, with patients-led foundations uh, and scientists? Yeah, that's a great question. I think genetic counselors specifically, I think, play a really important role of acting as a liaison between patients and scientists in this field um, and really hearing the patient's stories and getting the patient perspectives and advocating for patients by um, communicating these perspectives to scientists. Um, and the role of scientists and genetic counselors in general in this space, I think, is to do the work to always check, I like to say check the, the, len the, the lens that you're wearing. What, try to understand what perspectives and what beliefs that you have, where those ideas come from, what, what lens might you be wearing or looking through um, that makes you believes the, believe these certain things. For example, maybe working in healthcare and being really passionate about research influences your perspective and the way you see things. Um, and then I encourage scientists and genetic counselors to, once you recognize what lens you are wearing, try to remove that lens and see what patients might be saying um, from the other side. That's Immanuel Kant coming to genetic counseling. Thanks, Jenna, for this good metaphor. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask what your dreams are for the years to come in this space, in genetic counseling in general, and for the um, ableism. My dream, man, that is a big question. <laughs> My dream, once I graduate in May, honestly this might sound cheesy, but I really mean it, is to continue having conversations like this one, because you know, in, in my training right now, we're learning so much about the inequities in our healthcare system currently and how discriminatory our, our current system is towards people of color, towards trans folks, disabled folks, and other marginalized communities. And um, we are having rich, really rich discussions um, about all of these inequities and where they stem from and how we as genetic counselors entering this medical or healthcare space come May, how we can work to change these current systems. How can we, you know, how can we question every um, act of injustice that we will inevitably see in our practice? That is my hope and dream not to let any of this training slip 
to continue having these conversations, to continue doing work to understand and um, untangle these unjust and oppressive systems. And how can I make change? How can I never be a bystander, always speak up and always continue to advocate for my patients and do what's best for my patients and specifically with ableism um, how do I how do I recognize and check myself when I am operating through a medical model of disability which is inevitable as someone who will be operating in the healthcare system um, how do I make sure to remove that lens and to make space for the social model of disability and to advocate to make the world more accessible for people with disabilities? Um, maybe this shouldn't even be framed as a dream and should really just be framed as the reality of what should happen. But um, yes, this this is my hope for once I graduate, I hope to continue always having these really important conversations and to never, ever let my training in these conversations ever fade. That's exciting. And I'm looking forward to know how the gender genetic counselor in 10 years from now will be. So thanks again for speaking uh, on our microphone today. And um, I'm looking forward to discussing with you the novelties of genetic counseling in a few years, maybe. Thanks, Jenna. Mm-hmm. <laughs>